because I'm pushing the wrong button. <laughs> You'd think after this many years of pushing the buttons on that thing, I would have them figured out. But <clears throat> for some reason, it doesn't like it when I push the wrong button. <laughs> it definitely gets more difficult. <laughs> so, okay. So today we are in Romans chapter 15. And, uh, and we have reached a, uh, a milestone in the book of Romans in that uh, last week we were looking at, uh, at verses uh, 7 through 13. And that really concludes the main body of, of Paul's letter. You start out in chapter 1 in verses 1 through about verse uh, 13, 14, 15, 16 in that area. You have his introductory remarks, uh, and then beginning in about 116, he launches into his presentation of the gospel and all the things that are related to the gospel that goes on for many chapters. Uh, and then in chapter 12, he gets into some of the practical applications of the gospel in our life. What does it mean to have our minds renewed by the gospel? And he talks about that in 12 and 13 in chapters 14, as you remember. And the first part of 15, he talks about the issue of unity in the church. What do we do when we disagree about things? How do we learn to get along when we have differences of opinion? And that's what we've been laboring through the last few weeks. Chapters 14 and the early chapter 14, every part of chapter 15. And those verses that we looked at last week, then he wraps up, he concludes his discussion of the subject of unity uh, in, in the church. And, uh, and that pretty much is the conclusion of the main body of the letter. And then beginning where we are today in verse 14, he begins to kind of launch into a lot of the just personal things, more personal things that he needs to communicate uh, to the Romans about them and about himself uh, and uh, his greetings and all those sorts of things. And we tend sometimes, I'm afraid, when we get to that point in one of Paul's epistles where he's kind of wrapping things up, I think sometimes we tend to kind of shoot right through those real quick because we don't think they're important, but they are important. And I'll trust that you'll see that today, that the things that he's talking about uh, are, are crucial issues to think about and to be aware of. Uh, for the sake of uh, for the sake of context, let's pick up in verse seven to remind ourselves what we talked about last week, and we'll review that. Uh, and uh, we'll read down through verse nineteen, which will cover the verses that I'd like to look at today. So he says, therefore, in verse seven, accept one another, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles, 
by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Okay? Well, look there at verses 7 through 13, the passage that we looked at last week, and let's see, what can we remember that we talked about last week? Great, great, good. Okay, that's a good synopsis. What are some of the uh, some more of the specifics? What is what is the one place we talked about this at some length? Of, what is the one place where our unity as a church is most beautifully expressed? What is something we do as a church that is a reminder of our unity? Pardon? The Lord's Supper. Yeah, we talked about the Lord's Supper. When he talks about, when in this passage, when he talks about receiving one another, I mentioned that, that the uh, in, uh, involved in that idea of reception is the idea of hospitality. So it's not just, Paul is not suggesting that we just simply tolerate one another. We just put up with one another the people that we differ with, we just kind of well, okay, I'll you know, I'll I'll get along, you know, but rather it's a it's a it's the idea of hospitality, and when you talk about hospitality in a New Testament church, one of the things you're talking about is bringing people into your love feast, and the love feast in the New Testament church invariably also included the Lord's Supper, okay, so it's the idea of of these people that you that you have a difference of opinion with, you're receiving them. Again, we're talking about in what we call non-essential areas. We're not talking about important issues of things like the deity of Christ or salvation through the atonement of the cross or things like that. But we're talking about issues that are, that are not on that level of being what we call deal breakers, but they are, they are the non-essential areas that we disagree about uh, but they are, as I said, they're not, they're not unimportant. They are important things, but they are not essential things. All right? And on those things, when we, when we have someone we differ with, Paul expects us to receive them, to welcome, to be hospitable to them, to receive them warmly, to receive them into, as he's, as he's implying here in Romans, to receive them into our love feast, to sit down and break bread with them, to sit down and take communion with them. And we talked about how uh, communion is first and foremost, of course, a remembrance of the, of the sacrifice of Christ. He says, you do this in remembrance of me. But as we study the idea of communion or the Lord's Supper or the breaking of bread, whatever you want to call it, as you study that idea in Corinthians and other places in Scripture, uh, it becomes clear that another key element of the idea of the breaking of bread is we all take the same bread. We all eat of the same loaf, he says. We all drink of the same cup. So, there, when, so that when we take communion with one another, when we, we are, in a very meaningful way, identifying with one another. You remember, for those of you who were there for our... For our uh, 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 a uh, uh, Good Friday service. I can't remember when, when we did this. Our Good Friday service. We had the uh, we had the dramatic presentation of the Living Last Supper, and then uh, as we usually do when we do that pr- particular presentation at the end, uh, we had communion. And uh, and the way we did it, if you weren't there, the way we did it, uh, un- usually uh, here at Trinity when we take communion, uh, the the deacons come up and they take the cup and. And they pass the cup out to the congregation in the pews, and then they come back and they take the bread and they pass it out to the congregation. But on this particular occasion, what we did was was uh, because we had the actors up there acting out the uh, the uh, the Living Last Supper, Da Vinci's Last Supper, and we had them there. We had them up front to serve the Lord's Supper, 
And we had the whole congregation get up and come forward. Uh, they actually do that kind of thing more in, in some churches than uh, particularly in higher churches, Lutheran and Episcopal churches and places like that where you, you actually come forward to take communion. We don't do it that way in, in Baptist churches uh, uh, typically. But in this case, we did. And, and uh, to me, that was one of the most meaningful points of the whole evening was when, when, when uh, the invitation was given to communion and I was standing at the back of the auditorium uh, and so I started to move forward right away. And, but as I did, I just saw all these people start to get up uh, in their pews and begin to move forward. And it was like all together as one body, we were saying, we want to do this. We want to remember Christ. We are united in this. And this is really the idea. This is one of the ideas of communion, that we share the same loaf. We drink the same cup. And so it's a meaningful thing. It's a significant thing. When uh, Charles, you're being paged. Uh, it's a significant thing. It's a, it's a really meaningful thing when, when we sit and take communion to, to contemplate not only what Christ has done for us, but to, com- to contemplate our unity with one another in partaking of that. Okay. And so when, when, when we have differences of opinion with people, it's a very meaningful thing to sit down and to take communion with that person. Jerry, could you close that door? Uh, it's a very meaningful thing to express that even though I dis- differ with you on this point or that point, or we may disagree about some things, that you and I can sit down together and we can take the Lord's Supper, we can take the bread, and we can take the cup, and we can partake in those things together. So, uh, so that's one of the things we talked about last week. What else? I got a little long-winded there, which is to be expected. But Anything else you remember from last week? One of the things we did talk about uh, in that uh, in that verse is how all of that is linked to the area of unity. That Paul has put this idea of this joy and peace and hope. It's all linked together with this issue of loving one another, accepting one another in the body of Christ. If you have a church where people are at war with one another over non-essential things, it's a church that doesn't have joy. It's a church that doesn't have peace. Okay, And Paul has already told us in chapter 14 that the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking, but it consists of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And so when we become focused on these non-essential things that we differ about, and it doesn't mean we can't discuss them, it doesn't mean we can't talk about them, we can't debate them, But when we go to war with one another, when they become for us a criteria of fellowship, when that happens, then then the church is lacking in this area of the joy and the peace and the righteousness uh, uh, and the hope that should be expressed in, in the body of Christ. Well, so that really kind of wraps up then the main body of Paul's letter, as I said. And we pick it up in verse 13, or verse 14 then. He begins to explain to the Romans some things about his ministry, some things about what he's, what he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing. And uh, to kind of set the context, it might be helpful because there's things he says here in chapter, the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16 that really relate very much to some things he said clear back in chapter 1. And since we studied chapter 1, 
two years ago. <laughs> Let's go back and read some of these verses in chapter 1 because they really are connected to one another. So go back to chapter 1 uh, and Paul begins his letter to the Romans and, and of course there are his very introductory remarks where he introduces himself and, and, uh, and his ministry, etc. And then... Uh, and then beginning in verse 7, he, he addresses them. He says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know then from verse 7 that the letter is addressed to the Romans, to the believers in Rome. And he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And this will become part of his discussion in chapter 15 about his coming to Rome. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. <clears throat> Excuse me. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he launches into his discussion of what that gospel is. So, so he's writing to the Romans. He says their fame has spread throughout the whole world. Of course, this makes sense. The Roman Christians were located, of course, in the city of Rome, which is the, you know, it's the megapolis of the Roman Empire. It's the, uh, it's the central, you know, central place uh, culturally, politically, uh, in every way, it's it is the uh, it is kind of the focus of the whole Mediterranean world, and so it only makes sense that if you have a very vibrant, functioning church in a city like Rome, the 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 word about that church is going to get out, especially to the other churches in the empire, and I think that's what Paul means here when he says that their fame has spread to all the world. What he means is that the reputation of the Roman church has spread to all the other churches throughout, uh, uh, throughout the Roman world. And, uh, and so Paul has this desire to go to Rome, but he's been hindered from going to Rome so far. He, as we talked about when we studied chapter 1, he wanted to make it clear that his, his, his not coming to Rome up to this point is not because he's ashamed of the gospel. Rome is, of course, this this uh, this uh, boiling pot of cultures and worldviews and pagan religions. And uh, there's all these competing ideas in Rome. And somebody might be inclined to think that Paul has been reluctant to come to Rome because he's afraid the gospel can't stand up to all these competing worldviews. And Paul says, no, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel and I'm coming to Rome and I am eager to preach the gospel in Rome. OK, uh, but he has been uh, he has been uh, delayed so far in coming to Rome. And as we get on in chapter 15, we'll understand more of the reason for that. So this is kind of the context or the background for the things that he wants to say in chapter 15. And he starts out in verse 14 and he says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. So we discover right off the bat that Paul, even though he's never been to Rome, he is not the what we might call the founding apostle of the Roman church, as we talked about when we studied the, the introduction to Romans, we believe that the Roman church was probably founded by believers coming to returning to Rome from Pentecost. So it's probably a very old church, probably from the very beginning of the church. Uh, the church in Rome existed, but it was so it was probably believers 
uh, who had uh, people who had been converted at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Uh, we know there were people all over the world uh, who were there in Jerusalem at the time, and there were people from Rome. And these people then were converted and then returned to Rome and began to establish a church and to worship. And of course, over the years, because Rome is Rome, there are always Christians traveling back and forth on business or politics or whatever, for whatever reason, for economic reasons, there are people traveling back and forth. So you have a, you have a, a lot of intercourse going on between the various parts of the empire and the various churches in the empire and Rome. And so, so Paul, though he's not been to Rome, he didn't found a church in Rome. He has obviously some knowledge because he begins to talk about what this church in Rome is like. And, uh, and, he, and he says, uh, you'll notice sometimes we, we miss these things. They, they, they seem so obvious we skip by them. But notice in, in verse 14, he says, I myself also. Now, if I were to say to you, I myself also know something. What does that imply to you? I know what somebody else knows. I may know what you know, or I know what somebody else knows. So when Paul says, I myself, and it's written that way in the Greek, it's stressing his own personal knowledge. It's not just saying, I know, but he's saying, I myself know. Okay. So this is something that he's claiming. This is a knowledge He's really emphasizing that he holds to this knowledge. He holds to this opinion of the church. Okay, But then he uses the word also, which implies that there are others who hold to this opinion of the church. So the point I'm, the point I'm simply trying to make is, is here's a man who's never been to Rome. He's never been in the Roman church. How does he know the things he knows? Well, his expression here, I myself also, implies that there are others that he knows who have this opinion of the church. So this is not just something he's concocted up in his mind. It's not just something that he just kind of made up out of whole cloth. Uh, but rather, he's heard reports from Rome. Now, we do know that there are some people in Rome. When we get on into chapter 16, we'll find out that there are some people in Rome, particularly Prisca and Aquila and possibly some of the others that he lists in chapter 16, who were his co-workers. Some of them had been converted before Paul was converted. One of them that he lists was his first convert in Asia. Okay, So these are long-standing Christians who have had association with Paul, have worked with Paul. Some of them possibly been in prison with Paul who are now in Rome. So there are people in Rome whom he really knows. And presumably he has correspondence with them. And of course we know that Prisca and Aquila had been in Rome, had gone to Ephesus when Paul was in Ephesus and spent some time with him in Ephesus and then later returned to Rome. And, and so there's this interaction back and forth. So, so Paul has been hearing, as he says in chapter 1, their fame has spread throughout the whole world. So he's been hearing about this church in Rome. And he's been hearing some really good things about the church in Rome. And so he says, I myself also am convinced. These people whom I've talked to, Prisca and Aquila, whoever has brought this word to him, or however he's heard it, they've told him these things and he's saying, I really believe this. I believe these things about you. Now these are some tremendous things that he says about uh, about the Romans. But what's interesting is that his letter here is a very typical first century letter or, or, or uh, a letter from that era. If you read uh, secular letters, uh, and I've had the opportunity to read some, of secular letters written back and forth between people in the Roman Empire in, the, in, in those centuries around the first century, uh, it's very typical that uh, uh, either at the beginning of the letter or at the end of the letter, they'll load the letter up with all kinds of kind of flattering remarks, okay, to make their letter acceptable, okay? And unfortunately, what happens, uh, sometimes we get too smart for our own good, and, and, and so, so sometimes, sometimes what happens is when commentators read this, they kind of conclude that Paul has written some pretty 
some pretty uh, deep stuff and some pretty, in some cases, some pretty bold kind of uh, almost, you know, really corrective stuff like he has in chapter 14. And, and so in order to make those things acceptable, he's kind of flattering the church. Some commentators even use the word. And they say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not that he's being insincere, but he's flattering them. And I'm going, excuse me? The word flatter means to be insincere. Okay? So the question is, is Paul just simply flattering the Christians here? Or does he really mean this? Well, I'd like to remind you that Paul has a very principled objection to flattery. In fact, he brings it up in the very next chapter. If you flip over to chapter 16, uh, in, uh, in verse 17, he starts to warn them about false teachers. Uh, he talks about those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching, etc. And then notice in verse 18, he says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So he characterizes these false teachers. One of the ways that he characterizes these particular false teachers is their smooth and flattering speech. Have you ever been flattered? Have you ever, have you ever, ever been in a situation when you just felt like somebody was, somebody was flattering you? Has anybody ever had that? I've had that happen. Have you had it? More. <laughs> uh, I've had it happen. And I tell you, it just makes you feel dirty. <laughs> you know, you just begin to feel like, you know, you'd like to believe all this stuff they're saying about you. But you know, their only reason they're saying it is so that they can use you in some way. And in fact, Paul brings that up if you flip over to First Thessalonians uh, in chapter 2. Uh, he says, uh, he says in verse five, and he's talking about his ministry to the church in Thessalonica. He says, "For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness." He puts flattery right up there with greed, and he says, "You know that when we came to you, we weren't just flattering you." Okay. The legitimacy, Paul, Paul's argument in part for the legitimacy of his ministry was that he does not flatter people. And, and he says, now you know, when I was with you, I wasn't flattering you. Now, how do you know when somebody's talking to you that they're not flattering you? They're telling you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. Who flatters a lot, and it makes it so I want to distrust everything said. Precisely. Yeah. 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 I know. I feel you're saying this stuff. I know that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And and one of the ways, one of the ways we know that somebody doesn't flatter is because when they see something about us that needs correcting, they do that. If they'll speak to us and tell us, you know, there's this area of your life or you know, if they'll do that, then we know that they're not inclined to flatter people. And so we can take their praise seriously. But I've been in situations, I told a fellow one time, uh, and, and I don't know if he was really flattering, but, but he was always telling me things very positive about myself. And of course he was right. <laughs> but I wasn't sure if he was sincere. I didn't know if he really saw that in me or if I needed to tell him, yeah, I really know. I'm just kidding. But he, was, he would oftentimes tell me these very positive things, but, I, but he never really confronted me on anything. And uh, so, so at one time I told him, I said, you know, you tell me all these things, but I, but I don't know if you're sincere. I don't know if you really see those things. Well, he was kind of offended at that, you know, maybe legitimacy. I don't know if I had mischaracterized or no, but I, but he's just a guy I felt kind of uncomfortable around in that particular respect. In other respects, 
I really liked him. Over in the next to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Jude, uh, in verse... Uh, Verse 16, uh, he's talking again. Uh, this is Jude now. This is not Paul. But this is Jude. But this shows us the objection that the apostles held uh, and the writers of the New Testament held to this idea of flattery. And he's talking here again about, about false teachers and, and, and those kind of people in the church. And he says, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's a flatter, isn't it? Flatter is somebody who sees some advantage. If they, can, if they can pump you up enough and say enough nice things about you, they'll get you on their side and they'll gain the advantage. Okay. So, so I'm really quite offended, personally, when Christians suggest, some commentators suggest that Paul was flattering the Romans here in chapter 15. I don't think this is flattery at all. I think this is absolutely sincere. But the question they ask is, well, Paul's been pretty blunt, particularly in the last chapter and a half about this issue of unity and difference of opinions and people judging one another and people uh, having contempt for others who didn't hold to the liberties that they held to. And so he's been pretty bold on some things. And they think, well, how could Paul say these very positive things about the Roman church? If, in fact, the church had these needs that needed to be addressed and needed to be corrected. Well, how do we answer that? You know, do, we, do we suggest then that if a church has problems, that it has no good qualities? If some person, some individual has some areas of weakness in their life, some blind spots in our life, do we conclude then that there's nothing positive about them that we can praise? Unfortunately, I think sometimes that's the way we act. You know, I, there are there are some. You know, it, it happens to me sometimes. Uh, uh, I'll you know, there'll be somebody I know, and I and I know they have maybe this problem or that problem. And then I'm talking to somebody else, and they're talking about how great this person is. And what do I want to do? Well, I want to, well, you know, well, really, you know, they've got this problem. You know, I want to gossip about them. I want to say, well, they've really got, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable when I, when I know somebody who has some weaknesses and somebody over here is just praising them out the wazoo, you know. And I feel like, oh, I need to get a word in here to kind of balance the picture, you know. We don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. If we know someone and we know they have an area of struggle or an area of problem in their life. We don't know, need to go around and tell everybody else that thinks highly of that person that they're really not as great as we thought they were, as they thought they were. We don't need to do that. Pardon? Yeah, exactly. We're not as great as we think we are either. And so, so when we hear someone else being praised, can we just take that as sincere? And not feel like we have to throw a little mud on them just to make sure everybody has a balanced picture of them. Well, so what is it that Paul says about the Romans? He says, well, he says they're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now, we, you know, it's very easy to just kind of blitz by those things and not stop and think about them. And, of course, we can do that easily because it's somebody else. But if somebody said that about me, I'd want to stop and think about it. Because <laughs> that's pretty high praise, folks. That's pretty high praise. To say of a group of people that they're full of goodness... Uh, when you when you think about it, this is a church in Rome. Let's go back again to Romans chapter one, and let me show you something in Romans chapter one. This is this is a church in Rome. This is the this is the the metropolitan area of metropolitan areas of the Roman Empire. This is where 
This is where you have the fullest expression of the culture of the Roman Empire. And this is how Paul describes the culture of the world in which the church exists at the time and certainly in our own day as well. He says uh, in verse uh, 28, he says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Now that's the culture of Rome. It's our own culture too, in large measure, isn't it? But it's the culture of Rome. And in that culture, you have this microcosm. You have this, this smaller group of people of whom it can be said, they are full of all goodness. They're full of goodness. And so, so you have this group, and in contrast to this description we just read in Romans chapter 1, you have people who could be described as he describes people in Galatians chapter 5 who are filled with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, etc. All those things, okay? So you have this stark contrast. And this is, this is really, a, this is really a, a testimony to what the transforming power of the Gospel. In the, you know, in those, in those verses there in Romans 1, he talks about, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God. And one of the ways Paul knows that the Gospel is the power of God is because he's seen what it has done in the lives of people like the Roman believers. It has absolutely changed them. And Jesus talks about that on the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And, and, and so, the, the Roman church was a church in, in which they had been so transformed by the power of the preaching of the Gospel and by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. They've been so transformed by that that in this pitch dark culture of, of the Roman megapolis, you had this microcosm of light. You had this body of people whose lights just shine out in a brilliant way. Now, if that could be said about my church, that would be a wonderful thing. If that could be said about the church where I fellowship, that we're full of goodness, even though we exist in this really polluted, dark world, that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? And, you know, I fret because every day when I open up my newspaper or I you know or I turn on my computer and the news comes up on the you know on the homepage on my computer it seems like our world's getting darker and darker and darker doesn't it yeah, yesterday it was bad news out of arkansas you know it just keeps getting darker and darker and darker but one of the things that means is that our light becomes more obvious doesn't it that we really begin to stand out more. The darker our world gets, if we as a church should be full of goodness like the Roman church, then we would really stand out. And people in Rome, the pagans in Rome, were beginning to take notice. And you, and you, can, you can, in reading some of the writings of some of the uh, pagan Roman writers, they're going, hey, now there's these Christians and they're, you know, they're really different. And they were different because they were transformed by the gospel and they were full of all goodness. He says, in addition to that, he says that they were filled with all knowledge. So, the Roman church was not, a, was not an immature church as far as their knowledge was concerned. You know, we could, we could presume to think, having read through and studied the book of Romans, that the people in Rome didn't know any of this stuff before Paul wrote it. 
But Paul's saying, no, you guys are very knowledgeable. You've got to remember some of the people that are there in Rome. There's people like Prisca and Aquila who were, who were hand-taught by Paul himself. Hand-tutored in Ephesus by Paul himself. Okay? And there's others. There's, a, there's an apostle who Paul in chapter 16 will discuss him. In chapter 16, Paul says, he was in the faith before me. And then he talks about guys who were fellow prisoners with him. So these are people who rubbed shoulders with Paul who are now in Rome. And so, so although the book of Romans provides us with a lot of really basic theology that we've gone through and we've talked about, we shouldn't presume to think that the Roman church was unaware of any of this stuff before Paul wrote it. He doesn't even claim that, as we'll see in a minute. Now, I don't necessarily think that they knew all this. When he says they had all knowledge, I think what he means by that is that they were that they were mature in their knowledge. Nobody, of course, has all knowledge. And so Paul wouldn't be suggesting they knew everything. But, but what he's suggesting here is that, is that there was a maturity of their knowledge. They were rooted in the Scriptures. They understood the faith. So this was not a church that was shallow in its understanding. There are, of course, many churches that are shallow in their understanding. There were some in the New Testament. Remember over when uh, whoever wrote Hebrews, whether it was Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, I happen to think it was somebody else, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 5, as he's writing to the Hebrews, he says, I've got some things I want to say to you, but I, I can't really say them, he says, because you're not, you're not mature enough in your understanding. He says, by now you ought to be teachers. But you have a need to be taught again the elementary things. That's a sad thing. When someone's been a Christian for a long time, you know, it's okay if, if someone's a new Christian. But if someone's been a Christian for a long time, and by now they ought to know the Scriptures... They ought to have devoted their life to understanding the Scriptures, to knowing what God says. That should have been the pattern and habit of their life. But they were satisfied just to drink the milk. They were satisfied just to sit in church and hear somebody else talk about it. And they never made the study of Scriptures and the understanding of Scriptures their personal quest. And so by this time, he says, you ought to be teachers. But you have need still to be taught the elementary things. Now, it's not that we don't always need teachers. We, you know, I need teachers, you need teachers. We all need teachers. But the question is, are we in our need for teachers? Are our teachers feeding us? Are we at a point where our teachers can feed us the really meaty things? Or are we still just hearing the very basic elementary things? You know, there are churches, uh, thankfully Trinity is not one of them, I don't believe, but there are churches in America where every Sunday morning all you ever hear is an evangelistic sermon. Oh, I, of course, I have no objection to evangelistic sermons. I have no objection to the gospel being preached. I want it to be preached. But when you've got a church full of people that have been Christians for 10, 20, 30, or 40, or 50 years, and every Sunday morning all they hear is the very elementary things of the gospel, there's something wrong. The Roman church is not like that. The Roman church is not like the Hebrew church. The Roman church is a church in which they're filled with knowledge. They understand these things. We've, we've covered some pretty deep stuff here, some pretty deep theology. And I believe the Roman church was able to understand that stuff. It made sense to them. Oftentimes people read that stuff in Romans and they go, that's over my head. I don't think it was over the Romans' head. I think they understood it. And he says, so you're full of goodness, you're filled with all knowledge, and he says, you're able also to admonish one another. Now, Paul's done some admonishing, but he recognizes that in the Roman church, that they are in a position where they are 
able to admonish one another. And when he says they're able to admonish one another, he doesn't mean they have the right to admonish one another. Of course we have the right to admonish one another. But the question is, are we able? Are we in a place where we can effectively admonish one another? There again, just like in the area of knowledge, that's not always the case. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul admonishes the Galatians. He says, now if any one of you is caught in sin, he says, any one of your church or your, your, your body is caught in sin, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. So in other words... There are certain qualities that I must possess if I'm going to be in a position to admonish others. One of the things is I need to be full of all goodness. <laughs> full of goodness and, and filled with all knowledge. You know, I've seen a lot of admonition go on in the church that came out of ignorance. I've done some myself. Okay? So, those first two qualities really lean to the third quality, Right? That, that I have to have a character in my life that makes me someone who's in a place to suggest to another person they can grow. And if I've not grown in that area, I'm in no place to speak. <laughs> like Jesus talks about the one who would correct another while he takes the, the speck out of another's eye while he has a log in his own eye. Okay? So I need to be in a place of character where I can admonish others. And, and I need to be in a place of understanding. I need to understand God's Word. I need to understand God's standards. I need to be filled with all knowledge. And if, if those qualities are there, then I'll be able to admonish others. And Paul says about the Roman church, they're able to do that. They've got spiritual people there. Well, if you've got this tremendous church, which admittedly has some areas to grow in, but it's a church that's full of goodness. It's filled with all knowledge. And it's got people there who are able to admonish one another. Then the obvious question is, Paul, why are you writing this letter? That's really the issue Paul's wrestling with in those verses. Why has he written this letter and why has he written it the way he has? You see, Paul's never been to Rome, although he's had an effect on some of the lives of people who've been in Rome. He really doesn't have a, he really doesn't have a position of authority over the Roman church as one who might have founded the church would have. You know, there are cases where uh, churches where Paul went in and he started the church, he was there in the founding, he appointed the leaders, etc., etc., and then when he read back to them, he would use that as part of his authority. He'd say, I, I can say these things to you because you are my children in the faith. But that was not his position with Rome. So, so in the first place, you know, here's this guy who's never been to Rome, who's never sat in one of their house churches, never broken bread with most of the people in the church the vast majority of them, never broken bread, doesn't even know their names. And yet he's writing this very strong letter. Why? So that's the first question. Why would he do it in light of the fact that he, that he doesn't have this close relationship to Rome that he has to other churches? And then, of course, the other question is why would he write that if the church is as strong as it is? And that's the issue that Paul's addressing in these verses. He says... He said, concerning you, my brethren, I find I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But even in spite of those things, I have written very boldly to you on some things, he says. So he acknowledges, OK, you're, you're this great church and I and I know that. So why am I writing like I'm writing? Well, he says, I'm doing it. Why? He says, in order that I may remind you again. 
I just, I just want to remind you of these things. And then he'll give another reason. But let's stop and think about this issue of reminding. Because Paul has said this before. In, in Philippians, he's writing to the Philippians. And in chapter 3, he says, he says, to write the same things, meaning I've written these things before to you, or I've communicated these things to you before. Is But I'm saying them again. And he says, to write the same things to you again. This is Philippians 3, 1, I believe. To write the same things to you again is no trouble for me. It's no sweat off my back to write these things again. And he says it's a safeguard to you. We need reminders, don't we? We always need reminders. Yeah, I, I think of the illustration of the of the uh, of the couple and uh, married couple, and they've been married uh, twenty or thirty years or whatever. And the wife finally couldn't take it anymore, and she says to her husband, "You never tell me that you love me." And he says, well, I told you when we were married. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. Would that fly, ladies? (laughs) Doesn't fly, does it? We need a reminder. Now, the reason our wives need that reminder is because we're fickle and we might change. God, of course, doesn't change. But we still need to be reminded. Sometimes it's been a long time since we've heard some things we need to hear again, right? So we need a reminder. Now, when, when I was a young Christian, when I was new in the faith, or, or not so much new in the faith because I would say very young, but in my earlier years, in my late teens, in my early 20s, and, uh, etc., uh, I, really, I was growing like a weed in, in the faith. Okay? And I was, I was sitting under some really good teaching. I was hearing good teaching and good preaching and stuff like that. And I was learning all kinds of stuff and I was all excited because, because I just, you know, it seemed like every time I turned around I was discovering something new and there's an adventure and there's an excitement in that, right? But as you grow on in the Christian life, there's still an element of that, of course. But if you notice that the more you go on in life, when you sit in church or you sit here in a Sunday school class, you're not always hearing as much new stuff as you used to hear, right? You're not hearing as much new stuff. Now, you may be getting a little different perspective, a fresh way of looking at some old truths, but pretty much you're hearing a lot of the same things you've heard before. Well, to the Holy Spirit, that's no trouble for Him, and it's a safeguard for you. It's my experience. You know, as I sit in church and I hear sermons preached, or I listen to messages on the radio or, 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 or watch things, uh, messages on YouTube, on the Internet or whatever, oftentimes I'm not hearing things that are particularly new. But they are things I need to be reminded of because I forget. Or, or they get kind of pushed in the background and the busyness of life and the crises of life come along and... and and if it's been a while since I've heard some truth and I hit, a, I hit a brick wall in my life and, you know, and I start to panic or I start to freak out. And then God says, remember, remember, remember. So this idea of reminding is important. And Paul's making no apology here to writing things to the Roman believers that they know. Now, I don't make any apology. I, I know you people. Most of you, if not all of you, studied your Bibles. You know all this stuff. And I make no apology for standing up here and telling you things I know you already know. Because I know you're like me. You've got to hear it again. Because if you don't hear it again, just like me, you're going to miss some things. You're going to be off target. Yeah, Ginger. Yes, and that's why God lets us go through a lot of stuff we go through, doesn't He? Because we, uh, because they do become teachers. And I don't want to suggest that that the Christian life isn't a life of exciting discovery all the way to the end. I believe it is. 
and 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 in my own life, in my own experience, I'm uh, I'm growing and learning and new things and exciting things uh, now too in my life. But but as a general rule, the older we get in the faith, the more this issue of reminders becomes a predominant theme in our experience in Paul's writing to remind them. But the reason he's writing to remind them is because although he did not found a church in Rome, he views himself as having an obligation to the church in Rome. You notice that? He says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. So he says, God has given me a grace, a chrismata, a gift. God has given me a grace. And it's because of this grace that God has given to me that I am, that I feel so constrained to write these things to you. And to remind you of things that I suspect you already know. What is the grace that he had from God? The ministry, a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. Paul had been graced of God. To serve Christ by bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. In in the church today, we talk a lot about gifts and spiritual gifts. And we get really focused on it. And, and they are an important subject. And there's something we need to think about. And, there, and, and there's something we need, you know, there's something we need, we really need to be working in this area, of developing in this area of spiritual gifts and understanding spiritual gifts. But I'm afraid that sometimes we get so focused on the gifts that we forget what they're called. They're a grace. They're a gift. Same word. Same Greek word. Their grace, their gift. In other words, if I have a spiritual gift, and I do, as you do too, okay, we all do. Paul's clear on that. If I have a spiritual gift, it is in fact that a gift. It's not because of anything in me. It's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm, I'm really sharp. It's not because I'm really spiritual. It's not because... God picked me out to be something special. You know, it's none of that. It is simply a grace. And Paul has this tremendous obligation, this tremendous responsibility that's been placed upon him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It's been given to him by Christ. He considers himself to be serving Christ in this. And he just thinks, this is, this is a, This is a wonderful thing. Your salvation is a gift of grace. Your gift is a gift of grace. It's a sad thing when Christians ignore their gifts because they're ignoring some rich possession that God has given to them. Not because they were As I said, not because they earned it, not because they merited it. It is a gift. But Paul just considers it this tremendous privilege to serve Christ. I mean, this is is the God who came to earth and suffered and bled and died to take away your sins and reconcile you to Himself. And now, in addition to that, He has given you some spiritual ability. And He said to you, I want you to be a co-worker with Me. 
Every one of us, not just me up here, you know, teaching the Sunday school class, but every one of us in whatever gift you are, God is wanting you to be a co-worker with him. Now, if Jesus walked through that door this morning and walked up here to the front of the class and called you by name and said, I've got a job to do. Would you come help me with it? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you feel tremendously honored? Wouldn't you feel tremendously blessed? Wouldn't you jump out of your seat and say, let's go? Well, you have, folks. That's exactly what He's done. He has given you a spiritual gift and He has said to you, come work with Me. It's no wonder Paul considered this a grace. No wonder Paul goes, I've just been graced with this thing, this ministry to the Gentiles. And so he writes this letter. He reminds them of things they already know. He's very bold with them. But he does it because he's been given this grace to be a co-worker with Christ in offering to God an offering of the Gentiles. Well, we're out of time. We haven't even fully begun to explore this. So we'll pick up this passage next week or if I'm gone next week to visit my new grandbaby, uh, Michael fill in and I'll be back the next week. So, uh, but anyway, that's the plan. So next week we'll pick up right where we left off.